future Andy here at about minutes and hmm, minute an hour and 25 minutes in uh, Jonathan describes in quite a lot of detail the injury he sustained it's, it's mentioned earlier in the show uh, but if you don't like sort of talk of uh, serious injury and sort of detailed description of, of said injuries you might want to skip from about an hour and 25 to about an hour and 30 so it's about a five minute section uh, you'll, you'll know when it's coming lasts about five minutes so yeah, you've been warned. If you don't like the stuff, maybe just skip ahead. Enjoy the show. What do you want? I've got two of my own. You've got all the words. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you're saying it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Blaming me already? Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, straight in, doors open. You know, it'll, be, it'll be insults next, and then it'll be all good. <laughs> That's, insults are fine. I'm used to those. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, we got kids too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We always end up laughing in the first couple of minutes, and they just go, "How do we start on this?" Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably not been a proper podcast. A proper podcast would have an introduction, and what? then they and it, uh, Steve says something when he does his. That's kind of yeah, they're uh, podcasts, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so you kind of yeah have an introduction and kind of welcome and and it even sometimes introduce their guests when they have guests but we don't normally bother for ages yeah well, i would say it's like a oh, hi welcome we're on the podcast like introduce you to andy he's the most accomplished uh pencil drawer i've met and he's the most persistent because he what day are you on 700 something uh what well, six t the number today was 684 yeah, every day. But I did, 30, months, I, did 30 days, I did 30 days before that because it didn't tell me, but I didn't number it then. So yeah, yeah I mean, the progression from day one to day now is actually not that much. So it's, I thought you'd have done better. But it's uh, I'm really impressed. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't color them in or anything, does he? <laughs> I've, I've tried a couple of times. It's it's impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah, never good at coloring. I never. I didn't do geography to O level, so I, I was no good at coloring to the lines. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do think you need to print them all out though, and then they can be a thing for someone else to color in because that would be already that'd be a great kids' book. Well, yeah. I've actually got, I was chatting yesterday because my, my attention grabber later, but I'll, you may as well slip now because I was gonna say, if only we knew someone book, who could bind books, yeah. I did a book, I did another binding course workshop yesterday, yeah. Um, and talking with a tutor, there was, there, was, there was only two of us plus the tutor, and I was talking about kind of my teacher's familiar with my work uh, in terms of the sort of the drawing and it was saying, I've actually kind of got a thought because for those who are watching on the video just by my shoulders there's some orange notebooks there and then next yeah. to there's a stack of black those are my sort of sketchbooks from the last mm. nearly two years and they're pretty ugly I mean they're, they're, they're cheap one pound from Hobbycraft, and well, before inflation, I think yeah, one pound thirty or one pound fifty now. Um, the cheapest ones I can get, I do one a month. Uh, yeah, it's a cheap hobby, mm -hmm. and but I'm thinking of, and I, I need to work out kind of how many to put into a, a into a sort of together. But I'm going to yeah. bind them, so I'm going to mm. sew them, take the staples out, sew them together, create some sort of cover for them. I'm not sure whether to do kind of sort of three monthly or maybe six months or four months. And then kind of, yeah, I can have a title down the side. They can be a bit more attractive. 
slide, just just to show your your progression level is uh, and your uh, dogged persistence of it, and to have a new thing to draw every day. That's a yeah. That's been a struggle yeah. at times. I can imagine. Yeah, Inktober makes things like that make it easy. When I was doing it with uh, Rob Thomas, and we were doing the kind of first year of drawing every day. Yeah, we kept we just Rob kept delivering a, a new set of prompts every month. Yeah, which made life a lot easier when somebody else delivers it. Uh, I've made things tricky for myself this month because I've kind of gone. I'm going to do each day. I'm going to do animals all month, and they're going to kind of have some linguistic connection, kind of either an end rhyme or a, a front mm. rhyme, um, just kind of. It's like. Uh, I think it was a few days ago, I, I kind of got back around to kind of, ah, right, I can do cat fish. Yeah. And I can do cat. And then worked out that I did cats on the second day of the month. It's like, nope. <laughs> well, here's an circle. idea for you. There's Every week is a celebration of some kind of something. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we've just finished Shark Week. And I believe we're now in Elephant Week, or we're about to start into Elephant Week. And then next week is going to be I don't know platypus or whatever. It's um, but there's always something. Mm. Yes, and it's, it's also uh, afternoon tea week this week. After, uh, yeah, that, that might. Um, that's. I suppose it depends how creative is your brain. It's um, when when you say afternoon tea in a sketch, what do you have? Do you draw a blank, or do oh, you okay. automatically have ten things that pop into it? Sure, it's you know, scones or cucumber sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. cross cut off or the, the difficulty for me is not the creative, not the creativity in terms of the imagination. It's it's yeah. creating, not creating. It's delivering that creativity in another format. Yeah. So I can, mm. I have a strong imagination. Mm. But sometimes, and this is, yeah, having not really done art, apart from the last two years, for the, yeah, prior to that, 30 plus years, yeah. maybe 40 years before that, uh, yeah, kind of the delivery isn't necessarily always as good. So was the project uh, to develop your drawing skills? Did you want to draw? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw, I, I had this chat yesterday with the, Put my tutor and the other lady on the course, and okay. well, the lady on course because there was only one other. And we're talking about kind of here. I, when I was in school, I had to drop subject. I had to drop a lot of subjects. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, now it's not, it's not uncommon for kids nowadays to do ten or twelve GCSEs. Yeah. When I was in school, it was O levels that days. You you did eight. That was it. I did so there were there were there were a few schools where they kind of you know eight or ten or, or something but yeah they tended to be the private schools with the better facilities and the more hours yeah. but yeah most schools it, i didn't go to a great school yeah it was just standard comprehensive really and so i did eight mm. so by the time you've taken you had no choice about maths to english yeah well, you could actually do less sciences then, but for me, because I was like this, there was the three sciences, because that was a given. That left me with two other choices. And that's not really much in the way of you know, options. And, and art was something I wanted to do, but I had to give it up. Yeah. And I kind of 
I, I did. I, I literally gave it up. I gave up art as, as something to ever do. And although I did kind of every now and again, yeah, I do like most people. But I, I, I never bought a sketchbook. Never picked yeah. up a sketchbook. Never took, you know, picked up any fancy pens or anything. Yeah, it'd be doodly on the side of your your, your meeting notes or yeah. yeah, on a post-it note or something like that. Um, until yeah, it was Inktober twenty. 2020 yeah october 2020 i kind of i'd been chatting with rob about kind of yeah it'd be nice to maybe do a bit of drawing because yeah throughout my teaching career i'd always kind of was that, like five yeah, months excuse the, yeah excuse it yeah Ex excuse my poor drawings on the board mm. i'm not an artist i'm a scientist that 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 was not a mantra but that was that was a common kind of, so kind of excuse thing. yeah yeah mm. no as i uh, was similar it's um uh, I was raised in Barbados in their education system, which is kind of like England's education system 60 years ago. Um, so there was still flogging at the school. It's uh, If we got in trouble, we were put out into uh, a lower garden to stand in the sun for an hour kind of thing. Mm. And it's full trousers, uh, button-up shirt, tie, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's I wasn't allowed to do art. Um, it's uh, yeah. as soon as you entered, you were you were put into categories, and I was put into the category of misbehaving. <laughs> it was um, uh, I got in a lot of trouble at school. Um, I was I was not a good student, um, but I loved history, absolutely loved history, loved English, hated math, um, loved physics. Ironically. Um, so I ended up only doing five, uh, we call them CXEs in uh, Barbados, but it's it's the same O-level equivalent. Um, I did very poorly at, at high school. It wasn't until I went to university at 32 um, that I realized I actually had a brain. Um, I did a, I did my uh, maths and physics A-levels at ASNA 2 in about six months just from self-study. Cool. Um, got accepted to university, and uh, I did a four-year uh, BEng degree because the first year was like a foundation degree, um, and it was um, yeah, I was on the dean's list for most of it until the last year, and it was um, yeah, I realized I actually had something in there that I could. I could, I could use and I was turned out to be I was really good at math and I was really good at physics and uh, really good at calculations and I became a civil engineer. Cool. It's maths and mud, isn't it? Basically. Yeah. I've worked yeah. with a lot of civil engineers that yeah, it's uh, I used to work with a guy who who did a he did a math degree and then started working as a civil engineer, so they put him on a civil engineering degree as well. Yeah. So it's it's just maths and then maths and mud. Yeah, they tried to get me to switch from civil engineering to maths, mm. and it's a. Uh, um, I had a great professor called uh, Martin Lavelle, I believe, and he actually gave me a real love of math. But it was um, he was like, oh, "Well, come and join my program." Come, and I'm just like, I don't really see anything fun or sexy about math, which I think quite offended him. And he's like, oh, my wife would definitely disagree with you. He's like, I'm not your wife. 
Um, and he's like, you could be a accountant or, a, or an actuary. It's like, you're not selling, not selling it. It's <laughs> like, you could make loads of money. It's like, it's. Yeah, I could also, I could make buildings and bridges. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, if, if, if my life was about making money, I would not be doing what I do. So it's, uh, my life is more about enjoyment of the pursuit and uh, uh, fulfilling whatever need dream I have and carrying it to its utmost ability that I can. It's never doing something a little bit. It's doing it all the way. All in. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to live, I think. Well, it's, it might not be the most financially successful way to live, but it's very no. fulfilling. And it's, um, I, I never have a day when I wish I should be doing something else. I never have a, a morning where I wake up and say, like, oh, I don't want to go to work because I love what I do. And at each step in my life so far, I've been a soldier. I was in the U.S. Marine Corps, even though I'm not American. Um, I've been a submarine pilot, a commercial diver, scuba instructor. I taught English in Eastern Europe, uh, civil engineer. Um, I'm a project manager a lot of the time doing uh, building works. Uh, woodworker, carpenter, now I'm a sculptor. It's I've been a sculptor now full-time for five years. It's at any point in time you told me in my life up to five years ago that I would become a professional artist, I would have laughed in your face because they was, were was so far from anything like that. Yeah. But you find that passion, that 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 drive, that need to make something uh, create something and you have to if you're like me you, you have to find a way it's mm -hmm. and it's and it could be i mean i work in wood but it could be in uh needlework it could be in metal it could be painting it could be drawing it's that need to uh get those uh inner thoughts or inner image that you have out into a, a real form yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think let's get. I, 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 I was racking my brain trying to think who it was. I was listening to a few days ago, and they were saying about how they currently work. I think predominantly in wood. Yeah, but they they were asked, you know, you know, what is it wood specifically? And it was the, the answer was basically no. I I want to create. I want to solve problems. I want to make things. Yeah. And I will use any material that I can. Wood just happens to be the material that I'm using right now. But yeah. if for some reason I can't use wood anymore, then I will just find a new material, a new medium in order to sort yeah, of true. create. Well, I, I specifically, I love love wood. Um, I love the uniqueness of it. It's individuality. It's uh, You could have 10 different logs or even 10 slabs or 10 bits of of store-bought wood make the same thing out of each piece but each piece will also be subtly different just because of the mm -hmm. character of the wood i mean you could say the, th the same thing about stone but it tends to be less obvious but when it comes to doing something like uh something like something like this have you can see this so like a sort of twist yeah, so this is a Mobius. Twist. Sorry, I'm a bit close. So the Mobius is a, a 
it's a three-dimensional structure with a single face. So yes. wherever you start here and you trace it around, you're going to come back to that one spot. So it's only one-sided. So I make a lot of these out of wood, but I never start with wood. Um, oftentimes, I'll start with a, a, a bit of string, a bit of paper. Uh, uh, um, so to make a Mobius strip, you just cut a strip of paper, and you put it together, you have got a sing, uh, solid circle. If you separate it, give it one twist, that's a Mobius strip. You yeah. trace it, you're going to twist inside and outside, you're going to come back to the same spot, so it's now a one-sided object. You twist it again, you've got a double Mobius. Looks very complicated, but it's still the same one-sided object. So once I get an idea, I, then I will look into something like um, uh, clay. Oh, nice. Yeah. Make more clay. And this is just a reference for me. So when I'm carving something, I'll look and say, okay, I need to come here. And then I do that. Um, and I'll draw it a couple times too. But then when I'm drawing it, I usually draw it. Uh, I try to draw it from all sides and uh, with different proportions um, and different features. So none of the drawings, will, like you wouldn't look at the drawings and see a series of drawings. You'd see eight different drawings of uh, eight different objects. But for me, it's all the same object that I'm looking at in different ways. Mm -hmm. So then when it comes to getting a piece of, of wood and I start carving it, I'm going to find uh, 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 different things in the wood. I could find uh, uh, cracks. I could find voids. I could find rot. I could find metal. I could find all, all these different things inside of a, like a tree trunk. Um, but I've already thought of 10 different ways to cut this. So as soon as I find something like that, then I just change my plan a little bit and I can just go on it. It isn't a big, uh, Oh my goodness, what's happening now. Um, I can just carry on and it's, it's much more of a freestyle way of carving. So I don't have a, um, okay. I need to carve this It's like, I need to carve an idea of this. So it's different when I used to, when I first started carving, I did a lot of a uh, figurative, uh, sculpture, uh, very much on human anatomy and human anatomy, if you want accurate, it needs to be quite uh, uh, proportionate. So then you run into these defects in the wood. It's like, oh, what do I do? I either leave the defect there, I pack it with something, or I start again. Um, and I saw, uh, which is, a, if you spend a lot of time making a sculpture, and all of a sudden you run into one of these anomalies, it can be quite disheartening, because you might have spent 10, 20, 30 hours, 40 hours into something. And then... Yeah, all of a sudden you're, the idea is gone because you've stuck to that one rigid idea. But if you allow for that potential of a void, a potential of a crack, and think your way through it, when it does happen, it's 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 a like a little beautiful blessing rather than a problem. And it's like, oh, this is the thing that's going to be actually really unique about this piece of wood. So instead of then trying to fix it or hide it, I'll then highlight that specific spot. Mm. So I'm I'm curious. I, I want to almost step back a bit because I mean, I, as much as I, yeah, as, as you know, I've done a bit of carving, although not recently. I really should get back into it. The 
the work you do is is, is amazing. It's kind of yeah, just trying to create something like a Mobius strip. Like I mean, I've looked at some of your work and I've gone, I get the maths of it. Yeah, yeah, mathematical scientific background as well. I kind of understand kind of yeah what Mobius strip is, and, but I think actually to create that is 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 kind of just hard work. But I want to step back a bit further. Sure. You've, you've gone through kind of you, you've had a range of careers. You said you, like me, you had to drop art in school. Yes. You were given the option of doing art. And you, know, you, you clearly have had a, a, a very interesting career doing a, a variety of things, none of which would be in everyday situation kind of regarded as anything creative or kind of art like. You know, you've kind of got. Not you know, at all, no. So where did the art, were you always kind of just drawing and doodling and, and making stuff out of clay or um, no, wood? No, no. When, when did it, when did you go from kind of, I'm leading, you know, I'm doing these very, uh, I would say adventurous and interesting jobs to... I should say that, that all seem to revolve around creative problem solving now. There's a lot of creative I, thought on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, potentially. It's um, it's. I've always been involved in it, uh, being from Barbados. It's I've always been in and around the water. Um, I was a really big free diver when I was young. Uh, I started doing scuba diving when I was like eight. Uh, was an instructor for a long time. Um, uh, and I traveled a lot. It was with my family. My father moved us a lot. Um. So I've lived in many countries all over the world. Uh, as you can tell, my accent is mutt. It's a little bit from everywhere. Mm. So no, I'm not American. Yes, I have Canadian citizenship. Yes, I've also got English citizenship. I've also got Barbadian citizenship. Um, and I'm a resident of America. Um, but I've been in England now for 15 years. I consider this my home. Uh, love it here. Uh, people who say, how could I live in England? as opposed to Barbados, it's like, go and live in Barbados for six months and come back and talk to me. Um, <laughs> you go and use a chainsaw in 40 degree heat with 100% humidity um, for eight hours, and then, then we can have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> Barbados is beautiful, the beaches are lovely, um, but once the beaches are over, like after your two weeks or three weeks honeymoon with the beaches, there's not that much else to do. There's no real parks, there's no real walks, there's no waterfalls, there's no lakes, uh, there's no gardens, the shopping's not great. So it's, um, for a, a, a tourist destination, it's fantastic, but to live there can be, um, uh, my first thought would be boring. Um, I was a big surfer when I was young, so I'd spent, whenever I wasn't uh, at school or working, I was surfing. But even that, if there's no waves, and you, know, you might not get waves for six months. It's like, what else do you do? Yeah. There's a lot of like, um, music and art and things over there as well, though, is my understanding. Yeah, but I was, ne I was never into music. I was ne definitely never into art. Um, my path to art, if I can think back, would start when I was a commercial diver, and I was working on oil rigs in the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico. And I'd always wanted to draw. My sister, my eldest sister, she is a, uh, an amazing self-taught artist. She's done a few coloring books and 
she's one of those people who will make you a birthday card and it's so even just the envelope is so decorated you don't even want to open it because you don't want to damage it yeah. um and i've always been a little bit uh jealous and definitely envious of her ability so uh, i heard about this book called uh drawing on the right hand side of the brain um and it was uh gifted to me i took it on an oil rig and i spent two weeks uh because i were working 12-hour shifts uh, six hours of each of those shifts, I'd be in a decompression chamber uh, practicing drawing. Um, and you can't take paper into a decompression chamber. It was on these like a plastic tablets. And I would, there was nothing else to draw in there. So I was drawing my hand. I was drawing my foot. I was drawing the portholes in there. I was drawing the, uh, um, uh the instruments inside the decompression chamber and i was very uh interested in getting it as accurate as possible um so i i was able to eventually be able to to draw a realistic images it took me a long time though um and then i got quite hurt uh, on an oil rig once I, I got my right hand crushed um and i broke four bones in my hand, I crushed four fingers in my hand. One of my fingers was telescoped into my hand. Um, and I didn't think I was going to ever have the use of my hand again. Uh, but it turns out I got a good doctor. Um, and while I was rehabilitating for it, a friend of mine who I went to commercial diving school with had moved to Hawaii. And she was working for a company out there called Atlantis Submarines, which is a tourist submarine. It's a real battery-powered submarine. Goes down to um, uh, like 50 meters. Takes 48 people. And she's like, "Well, they're looking for people. Do you want a job?" And I'm like, "Yeah." I was on a plane. Like three days later, moved to Maui. Nice, nice. And I was in Maui for a couple of years. And while I was there, I tried to continue the drawing thing. I was doing. Uh, People. I was doing faces. I was trying to draw, draw dolphins, draw the, the the landscape there. But it was um. I didn't really have any uh, drive for it. It wasn't. I wasn't uh, a passion. It was more something I felt I needed to do. And that was kind of the end of my whole art foyer. So that year, I'm talking. Uh, I left there just after the World Trade Center happened. So you're talking, you know. Early noughties. Yeah, so it's like uh, 2001. Mm. Yes. That was a, it was a, it was a while ago. But then I went, moved back to Barbados, uh, back to diving. Then I got a chance to move here, came to England, where I was doing, uh, <laughs> I actually worked for a, um, a modeling agency and a, a stunt company called Extreme Force. Um and because I was ex-military, uh, we would be used as extras in movies because mm -hmm. we knew how to use all the guns. We knew how to wear all the gear. Um, so it was, uh, you got, a, it's got to be in a few movies, um, nothing that you've ever heard of, I guarantee. <laughs> and, and even if you did see one of them, I'm probably in it for like a half a second. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be like a SWAT guy running into a building or somebody dead on the floor kind of thing. Um, and I found that, again, incredibly boring. Uh, we were making about 500 pounds a day, which was great money. 
but you had to be there from six o'clock in the morning till six p.m. Yeah. Um, and and just sit there and wait and hope maybe you get called. Mm-hmm. Five days a week, that was it. Just sit there. <laughs> it's like this is not for me. So then I got uh, another friend who lived in Poland. Uh, she said, "Well, why don't you come and teach English?" So I was like, "Yeah, okay." Two days later, I moved to Poland. Um, and started teaching English. I've never taught English before. Uh, as I mentioned before, I did not do good at English in um, high school, but I just did conversational English. Uh, so my job was just to go with, and, and I, it wasn't for children per se, it was for executives. And I'd go to uh, the main central bank and talk to their CEO for three hours, just like we're doing now. I'd, I'd charge you, you know, 100 pounds for this. Um, and then uh, that expanded quite a bit. So pretty soon I was working for seven different schools and I was working between Warsaw and uh, Czech Republic. Um, and then we had a few issues with my family. So I moved back to Barbados, back into diving, uh, back into commercial diving. And I got sponsored by a uh, civil engineering company to come to the UK and do my civil engineering degree because it's uh i by this time i'd kind of taken over i had my own crew of of divers and i was running the jobs and while i was at university here in plymouth uh how crow was bought out and became a, a ch2m hill i believe who did not want a 35 year old uh uh diver uh, with pretensions of being a civil engineer working for them. So it was a, that kind of scuppered that plan. Uh, but in that time, I had two kids. Mm. So my ex-wife at the time, she had a very good uh, uh, job. Um, and even if I got to the top whack as a civil engineer, I could not compete even by half with her salary. So I became a stay-at-home dad. And But I can't do nothing ever. Uh, uh, even going to the beach and just relaxing there is kind of impossible. So I started doing the whole root garden thing I mentioned before. Mm. And then each time I made something, I it had to be better. Uh, and it's I wanted to expand on it. And that started, uh, I became like a, uh, uh, like a subcontractor. I started doing odd jobs for my neighbors, for pubs, for restaurants. Um, which is how I got into carving because I saw somebody had made like a little personal sign for somebody, a little uh, carved sign, and they were so happy with it. And I thought, I can do that. But I had no, I didn't know how to carve. So it's, uh, I went and got, I had a router, and I looked at, well, how do I make a sign with a router? And you could get those little, Templates, letter templates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I did one sign with those and threw it away. Uh, (laughs) I just thought it was rubbish. Um, Because you're restricted to the size of a letter, you're restricted to the font, and you have to set each letter, and it's just a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So I looked on YouTube, and I saw uh, there was a YouTube channel called Make a Wood Sign which uh, showed people how to freehand route. So you could literally carve letters with a router. 
Um, I got all into that. And within uh, a few days of binge watching like 500 videos, I was making my first signs and giving them to all my old clients. Um, uh, after about six months of that, I got to the point where I was, I was carving them, I was hand painting them, I was watching old Bob Ross painting videos, trying to figure out how to paint, uh, how to draw, how to do artwork. Um, still carving every day, I was carving multiple signs and selling them. Uh, got asked to do some shows and exhibitions. Um, and so I started going and doing live carving at uh, trade shows and agricultural shows. Uh, but like with everything else, I was never satisfied with just that kind of carving. So, because it was never quite as crisp as I wanted. It was never as perfect as I wanted. So then I started adding in knives and chisels. And as soon as I started that, a bit of a new world opened up. And I started to make these flat 2D signs. I wanted them to be more 3D. So then there was another big learning jump. And then as soon as I started making 3D signs, it's like, oh, well, why can't I do uh, uh, a face? Or why can't, like, I think my first carvings were abstract, much as I'm doing now, but they're talking five, seven years ago. I thought that was um, going to be a perfect kind of link in, you know, you've done yeah. 2D, you've done 3D, so now 4D for the Mobius. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was a whole big learning curve between there because it was my brain didn't see in 3D very well. Mm. So it's a uh, it, it was a real challenge for me to go from a two D to a three D image, and it's uh, but I'm kind of uh, driven and obsessed, and so I I would try something, and if it didn't work, um, I would always complete it and look at well, how did that not work? What what else could I do to have made that better? And I would keep it next to me, so when I would and I would do the same thing again. And try to skip that mistake, which of course just it's led me to more iterative process. Yeah, but then I would just keep. I mean, I still do it now. It's um, in between each sculpture I do, I generally whittle something. So I'll do little faces, and it's um, yeah, I do like loads of them. Fantastic! It's got that Nordic tradition. Those yeah. Like, but a lot of time when oh, I'm going yeah. through, we where I live in a, a Plimstock, when I go, I take the dogs. I've got two dogs. Taking the brook, I just take these and go stick them in the woods. I'll stick <laughs> them in the tree. Um, but that got me a contract with the National Trust, and I did uh, 10 big, large faces for them, which they then uh, stuck in. This was uh, just before pandemic. Um, they uh, stuck them in trees to make a like a, a a wizard a wood wizard trail. Nice, but some of the faces were a little scary, especially for small children walking through the woods at night to be looking for some kind of demonic witch face in a dark hole. So it was. Um, <laughs> in retrospect, I should have made them happier. <laughs> <laughs> They've got to learn at some point. <laughs> Yeah, learn to scream at the woods. Great. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but whatever. And I keep uh, switching. I'll do. Oh, before I jump ahead, so it's um. So then I wanted to make uh, 
more realistic sculptures. So I picked up a mallet and a chisel, never had any idea how to use them, watched a few videos and uh, just started. I was like, okay, well, this is, looks like where shoulders need to go. This looks like where this needs to go. And um, I just kept working at it. It's uh, mm -hmm. uh, It might sound quick or trivial, but it's uh, you're talking like I would spend 50 or 100 hours trying to get one shape right. <laughs> and then if I had to do it 10 times over, I would till I could get it to where I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. um, it's the bigger the sculptures got, then of course the more complicated I want or the more realistic I wanted to do. I started adding muscle texture uh, and pores mm -hmm. and like a, uh, 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 lines. I went to the part where I was trying to do because um, uh, I'd use people I knew as examples where they maybe they had a mole or a stretch mark. I would try to add that in, mm -hmm. um, which is quite tricky and rarely worked. But it was a uh, I would have it in my head that to, to, to recreate this, I needed to add all these things in, which was great learning, but didn't do well for selling them. Um, then I got into shells quite strong. You used one of my shells in one of the pictures. Yes. Yeah, I those, love that piece. Oh, those bloody shells. They are definitely the most complicated thing I think I've ever made. Because they're not a single uh, piece of wood. Those are laminated together. And they are 25 to 40 segments of wood, uh, all, all cut uh, and glued together. And it, the, the inside and the outside uh, replicate a real shell. So it's the same inside. So it's hollow all the way to the top. It's sanded all the way to the top on the inside. Because um, I wanted to make it as realistic as possible. And uh, the first one took me 40, 50 hours. It was, uh, yeah, there was, uh, just to make something that was, you know, this big, that just looked yeah. like a show. But when I would do a show and I put it there, people didn't actually believe it was wood. They just thought it was a shell. Um, <laughs> and then it's, how do you sell something that's this big, that just looks like a shell, that's taking you 50 hours? Um, yeah. So I didn't, uh, uh, I sold a few of them, um, uh, gave a couple away, but mostly I use them when I do shows and demonstrations as examples. Mm. Uh, I was approached by um, the Tate in St. Ives, and they yeah. wanted a big one, uh, like the size of a small car, uh, to use as an a exhibition piece, but at my cost. And they're quite happy to share my name. Uh, I'm, I could come and talk about it, but I had to pay for it. I'm like, it's like this, this cost me like 15,000 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> so unfortunately, that was a no. Yeah, understandable. But, but then I started, okay, well, why am I trying to go into all this work making these segmented shells? And then I started calling, carving them out of solid blocks of wood. And... Uh, Around that time, I started getting students uh, who wanted to learn to carve, which I always thought was funny because I thought I was a student. Um, and I think I'm still a student. I'm still, I don't think I'll ever stop 
learning or seeing something as like, oh my God, how do I do that? And spending a ridiculous amount of time trying to learn how to, learn how to do it. But there was, a, there was a lot of steps that I could show people. There was, um, uh, around the same time I started the YouTube channel to try to show people how I learned to freehand route and to uh, uh, mitigate all the mistakes I made and all the preconceptions I had first. Uh, so whenever I do a YouTube video or my Instagram stuff, it's yeah, it, very rarely will you see me because it's not about me. It's about uh, what I'm trying to do or the tools I'm using or how I'm using them. Um, it's sometimes when I see a lot of the, the Instagram videos or YouTube videos, and the first thing is like, Kai, this is me. It's like, yeah, I click off. I'd much rather see, well, what are you trying to do? What's your purpose? What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, is it about you or is it about what you're trying to do? Um, and uh, I like to show people that it's, you don't need fancy tools. You don't need uh, a big, amazing workshop. All you need is a piece of two by four from B and Q, uh, a knife, and you can make pretty much anything you want. It's just, are you willing to put the time in that it's going to take to learn how to do that? Um, and one of the, the first things I'll get from a student is like, oh, I would like to be able to carve this by the end of the week. I was like, okay, well, let's let's just step back a little bit, and and we'll we'll use a knife first and figure out how to use a knife, how to use it safely, um, how to use a chisel, how to use it shape safely, how to use a mallet, um, and it's guys can be quite a, a, a tricky to to teach the, the the first fundamentals of carving because they have a uh, a preconceived notion of how to do it. Um, and yeah. there it's like, okay, I'm big, I'm strong. I'm just going to whack the hell out of this thing. And it's all going to be perfect. It's like, well, no, it's, it's gentle. It's soft. It's you're you're not going to take off, uh, uh, uh cubic meters of a piece of wood first. You just want to take off little slivers. Um, and I find that the, the females that I've taught are, um, they're not, I, they're much more, uh, they, they tend to grasp the concepts more because I don't think they have a preconceived notion of they have to be strong with it. Uh, they can yeah. see the beauty in the lines and they don't have, uh, um, uh, they don't need to, to brute force anything. Um, not that uh, uh, men are better or worse carvers or women are better or worse carvers. Just I found that the teaching approach has to be quite different. Um, so it's uh, with ladies, I'll tend to use uh, the more aggressive tools sooner because they will tend to have more uh, uh, thought about what they're doing. Where the guys, I'll tend to give them butter knives for ages before I give them anything sharp. Because if I give them something sharp, they're going to cut something. But that is a bit of a generalization. I apologize what? for everybody I just defended. <laughs> it's interesting because that's something that uh, Steve from Moonshine, Moonshine Metalworks, who's just been in the, the chat briefly then, that's uh, an observation he's had when teaching blacksmithing. Okay. In that quite often if he's teaching um, the same concepts to, uh, to, to guys who are used to using hammers for knocking nails in or things like that, 
yeah. quite often he's got to uh, teach them how not to use the hammer. Yeah, you know, and try and train them out of bad habits or behavior patterns that that don't mesh with what he's trying to teach them. You know, yeah, uh, even down to holding a hammer differently for blacksmithing mm. versus you know a claw hammer for smacking the crap out of a lot of nails. And that's yeah. an observation that he's made is is that whenever he's taught uh, any women to blacksmith or you know anyone who's not his you know stereotypical bloke type. Mm. Um, they tend to pick it up much easier because they'll listen and they'll go through the, you know, the, the steps with uh, a little more thought or care or understanding of what you've given them in terms of instruction, rather yeah. than those preconceived notions or, or previous experiences. Yeah. As I wanted to make ones, I probably have ten different mallets in here, and oh, excuse me, this one, this one's hickory, probably. Uh, my heaviest one. It's it's very it's hickory and oak. It's probably a kilo and a half. Mm. Um, quite a heavy duty thing. And so when people pick this one up, they're like, "Oh, you can really smack that one." It's like, well, I probably do the gentlest taps with this one. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm barely even tap uh, little touches. And I for the lightest one which I have, which is pine, that's the one I wail the hell out of things with. It's, it's different it's, in uh, control, isn't it? Yeah. So it's the, the tools I have and use are not necessarily uh, um, how you would use them at first glance. Mm. And then, of course, that everything's got to be sharp. It's a, a dull tool is a dangerous tool. Yeah. So mm, if okay, things are sure. sharp enough, then you shouldn't have to beat on anything hard. It's if you're using a chisel or a knife, you should be able to, uh, at the very least, shave with it. Mm. You should be able to, to uh, slide a chisel on the end grain of a piece of pine and get a nice, thin, sh uh, uh, clean shaving. Um, and then for carving, it's perfect. If it gets dull and damaged, that's when I find accidents happen. Absolutely, yeah. It's the same with anything, isn't it? With you know, with, with cooking or carving or just general uh, removing any material from any other material. It's yeah, the appropriate tool. a great example of that. Yeah, if you're trying to cut a, a piece of paper or board, yeah, you want that to be yeah an exact size. You want that to be a clean cut. Yeah, the blade's not sharp. It will just drag the paper. And, and paper is people. Yeah, paper's an everyday it's really thing. Really abrasive. We cut it. It's it's something it really takes it out on on blades and yeah, yeah and because it, it's it's organic nature and the way if the fibers lie because of you know, the manufacturing processes whether that's handmade paper or whether it's you know manufactured paper which has a much more definite grain to it yeah yeah you know, the cut can you know, can really kind of be very different if you haven't got a sharp knife yeah most definitely. I think yeah. I, I think it it's uh, it's underrated. I, I, I was watching Laura Kampf's video this afternoon, her Casuals workshop tour, and a while ago she made a a sharpening station. Okay. So basically, it's a it's a box on the wall, and you open up the box, and you've got a bit of a platform, and then straight away there's a, a something like a tormac 
So you know, you've got all, and you've got everything you need for sharpening. All the jigs, everything are there within that box. There's a nice little light which comes on as soon as the door comes down. And yeah. she said, "I haven't actually used this since I made it, and it's sometime <laughs> last year." I just think, okay, well, I mean, you know, to be play fair with Laura, yeah, does she use either other? sharpening things and if this was just a sharpening station that she had the made yeah. but she already has other sharpening facility that she uses because it's quicker easier or is she very much kind of a lot of the time she's using disposable type materials or power tools so mm. the sharpening element is perhaps slightly different so yeah I'm not in any way having to go to Laura because I think her work is, is fabulous but just like I think it's like a, a sharpening is like one of those things that people tend to forget about. I'm going to yeah. buy some tools. I'm going to buy. I'm going to buy some chisels. Mm. Yeah, you need to keep those sharp. You probably will need to sharpen them before you can actually use them. Yeah, um, there's very few chisels you can get from a store that are actually sharp, sharp. It's uh well, I do have a Tormek uh, T4, which was uh I got sponsored by uh, Tormek. Uh, via Axminster when I was carving all the NHS plaques. And they'd asked me what is, what is one of the uh, uh, biggest drawbacks to what I was doing because I was carving uh, three plaques a day, three plaques every two days um, out of pine and with chisels. So it was, they, they would take a beating. And I was like, well, for every, you know, 10 minutes of carving, you got to spend a few minutes uh, uh, sharpening. And they're like, what, every day? It's like, well, no, every hour. So if I carve for 10 hours, you know, so you're an, an hour to two hours of sharpening in between that. So they got Tormek to sponsor me with a, a T4. And when I first got it, I was like, ah, what a piece of, I can't use this. Um, <laughs> but then I read the instruction manual. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I can. Um, and then it's, once it, it does take a little bit of a uh, practice to use it properly, um, but you can get them beautifully sharp. And so I would use the Tormac to get them to close to what I wanted, and then I would just finish them by hand. But it's the Tormac would take away 95% of the heavy work. Yeah. So instead of doing like uh, 45 minutes per chisel, and I usually use five or six different ones. Um, it would be five minutes per chisel. So, and if you add that up over a year and a half times 736 plaques that took roughly six hours each, it's, uh, I saved a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. And the work you did on that was fantastic. Yeah. For those that aren't, who are listening who aren't familiar with that, you basically produced kind of like a, a plaque which basically kind of had cross between the nhs symbol and kind of almost the super superman type sort of symbol yeah uh, which we sent to uh, hospitals and you inspired other people to do the same thing as well because obviously yeah. there's a large number of hospitals and medical facilities in the uk all into the nhs um so during the sort of lockdown and yeah, just fantastic work absolutely absolutely um, yeah it was um it, it didn't start out, it, there, there was no plan behind it initially. Um, it started off, one of my students was quite uh, elderly, a uh, lady named Pat, who was lovely, but she went into hospital. Well, we had lockdown, and she went into hospital, 
and she was quite uh, distressed that she would no longer be coming to her carving lessons. So I did a, a, a little video on an NHS plaque, um, just like a small, like six inch thing, um, for her to have something to do when she got out of hospital. And it was, uh, I posted that on Facebook and a friend of mine who worked at my local hospital till Derryford, she's like, oh, could you do a bigger one for us? We'd love to have one. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? I'm in lockdown. Posted that one on to Facebook. And that was kind of where I went a little crazy because that second plaque I did, uh, got shared or liked or commented on about half a million times in a week and i was getting i was getting messages uh 24 hours a day it's like could you make one for us make the one for us um so i then said okay well i'm gonna make a few for plymouth uh we've got a few hospitals here a few ambulance services so i was gonna make 10. um so started making them um, and the hard thing was when I was finished them, I couldn't even take them to the hospital because we couldn't drive anywhere. Okay. So ambulances were coming to my house <laughs> and picking up these plaques, uh, that were sealed in bags and I had to wet them down with alcohol and they would go into, um, the plaque would go into quarantine. The plaque would have to go into quarantine for three days um before it was even allowed to be given to the hospital so an ambulance would come pick up this thing massively social distance uh uh they would carry it almost like nuclear bomb with like tongs kind of bugs funny stuff put into the back of the ambulance strap it onto the gurney and then take off and then three hours later another ambulance would come for another <laughs> planet i don't know what my neighbors thought was happening because we're probably getting uh, four or five ambulances to my house a week. Um, I had you know, a few fire engines stop. I uh, had police come a couple times and stop. Um, because as people were doing the rounds and everybody was getting an idea of what was happening, anybody who was traveling via where I lived would stop by and pick one up and deliver it. It's uh, uh, I met some amazing people uh, um, who were... Uh, I had one, somebody came and picked it up from here and delivered it to York. Uh, it was because they had to go there uh, for uh, medical reasons. Um, and it was, uh, I don't know if they actually did the whole trip, but it went via this whole chain of different ambulances or what have you uh, from, you know, 400 miles, 500 miles. And we did, uh, so in, in the end, um, I did personally about 536 plaques. Uh, but it wasn't just for, it, was just, it wasn't just NHS. I did them for uh, ambulances and care homes, um, uh, other medical facilities. And instead of just carving NHS, if they had their own specific acronym, it's like, a, um, uh, like a, some of them, like a TASC for the ambulance service or, or Southwest Ambulance Service was SWASC. It's uh, there was, it made it a bit more interesting after carving them for you know five thousand hours. <laughs> I was like, please just give me some other word to what other word to carve. <laughs> uh, but and then I 
posted it on uh, Facebook, uh, on the Woodworking UK and the Wood Club, and people all over the UK jumped in and helped out and helped out their yeah. time. Uh, uh, some people offered their CNCs. Some people uh, were doing it with laser uh, and just getting it out to whatever hospital they were there. So Amazing. as far as I know, um, because I was not able to keep track of all of them, because people then took it on, were just doing it themselves. Uh, I, I think we got to 736 different NHS facilities across the UK, from the Isles of Scilly to Scotland. Um, never got over to Northern Ireland at all, uh, even though we did try to contact them, they never got back to us. Um, and I think the only reason they stopped is because I ran out of money. Because it, it, it was all it was all donation, it was all charity. I actually took out a loan so I could finish doing it. Um, and it was a first one. It's like, yeah, it's it it became enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> understandably. But it was very cathartic too, because it was. Um, I had a huge amount of loss uh, from the year before COVID to up to last year, where it's I lost uh, 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 six family members, all non all non COVID. Um, I lost the entire top echelon of my family. So my mother, my grandfather, my uncles, my second father, uh, uh, my uh, grandfather's uh, like lifelong friend. Um, it was horrendous. It was, it yeah, seemed like every that. couple months we'd lose somebody else who was like integral to my life. Um, and that really gave me something to focus on. Uh, and the fact that I was carving things, uh, making people happy i was uh, was helping me deal with my own grief and i was able to my girlfriend got involved with it and she was helping in every way she could uh kids got into it neighbors got into it uh woodworkers got into it and it um i knew my mom would have been proud of it so it was a yeah that got me through a very very hard very hard spot yeah, so what imagine yeah, I would, would I do it again? Ooh, I don't know. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and cre I mean, cre creativity is is often one of those things that people can benefit from mm -hmm. in yes. sort of difficult times. And I think maybe it, it sometimes maybe harder for people who don't have that release. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, as people play right, video games or whatever, but I, I think, mm. I think it's, uh, I mean, the whole men's shed kind of organization is, is almost yeah. built on mm. that kind of idea of, you know, I mean, there's, there's the issues of men's mental health and how men respond to mental health difficulties or not, yeah. particularly older men, you know, kind of have lived through that kind of idea of you know men don't cry and and if they lose their kind of your lifelong partner and mm -hmm. you know suddenly they're they're on their own which is a, a common story not not it's not the only story but it's a common story in uh the men's sheds type organizations yeah and i, and I think grief grief is something that everyone sooner or later has to deal with um mm. and it can be I don't think it's a small thing for anyone. Uh, it's, uh, I think some people are much better maybe at displaying their level of grief 
um, and some people are very good at hiding it. Uh, where I, I think that can be hard, almost destructive. Uh, I think that it's it's good to uh, address and touch on those those mm -hmm. those nerves, those raw feelings. Work um, through the emotion of it. Yeah, I mean, it's like with my mom. It was a. It took a year, where even I, I, I actually distanced myself a bit from my, my girlfriend and my kids, because I wasn't able to. I didn't want to touch those memories. Yeah. So maybe they would be doing something like uh, playing a board game that I used to do with my mom. I didn't want to play, because it just took me back into that memory. Um. And it's she kind of uh, metaphorically slapped me in the face and told me I was being a child. Um, uh, she did it a much nicer way than that, but it was a. Uh, it, it made me realize it was like I was not living up to my mom's memory. It was uh, she would never want me to distance myself or take me or be sad uh, with her passing. She would, in fact, she'd probably be pissed at me. So it's when I realized that I started to, it's almost like you need to, to, to view the memories in a different way and, uh, and step out of yourself and try to look at the happiness in them rather than feeling that overwhelming sadness inside. And if you can almost kind of refigure that memory in your head, it's no longer a point of pain. It can be a point of uh, whimsy, maybe, uh, maybe make you smile. And that's like, you know, step one, getting out of that grief cycle. Absolutely. I, I think it's such an individual thing as well that something like grief is, is such a, a difficult thing for... You know, there's no sort of one-size-fits-all template for how to process it. You know, every no. one of us is going to process it in, in our own way, in how... It works for us you know with so many layered memories of people are grieving and the, those interconnections between that and daily life as well you know, no, it's like well, initially when we first had some of the losses uh people were of course encouraging me to talk about it but that was literally the last thing i wanted to do mm. didn't didn't want to talk about it at all and if i did talk about it, it was very flippant um because mm. again i was just dodging 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 their thoughts but again it's uh but even before that uh being in the marine corps um it's uh, marine corps is not is not a, a gentle occupation mm. um and i know and i've worked with quite a few ex-military uh and ex-police who have dealt with some kind of ptsd and it's can be very cathartic and therapeutic to use your hands and yeah. it's I can carve, uh, sometimes I'll get into a carving and eight hours will pass and I'll think it's half an hour. It's, yeah. uh, I'll go into the workshop, it's, uh, you know, it's dark in the morning, come back and it's still dark. It's like, yeah, I've been there very long. Realize an entire day has passed and I've just been carving away. And it's, it's, it does help you to forget, but it also, you get a, a amazing sense of accomplishment because when you're being creative whether it's woodworking or 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 drawing or pottery it's to be able to have 
made something and, and you can see the results, the fruits of your work for that day in a tangible way. Mm. It's uh, uh, There is a satisfaction that can be uh, found in that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. I think, it, I think it's a, a point which is, is maybe lost on some, but I particularly thinking almost things like, yeah, how schools run and the, the way I mean, we, we hear a lot of complaints, some of them not necessarily justified of uh, things like you know, what the Americans call shop class, of course, or design yeah. technology in the UK being cut and there is an element of, of truth behind that, yeah. like most stories, but often the, 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 the reality of the story is, is not quite what perhaps the media want to present. You know, the, the, it isn't... I think we still suffer, though, in the UK and, and probably a significant portion of the, of the Western world. I can't, I can't comment beyond that, really, of sending people down the kind of route of your your academic you're going to use sciences languages your artistic so you'll go down the kind of the art route and, and you're kind of you're the, the makers and, and and almost kind of segregating i mean you, you talked about kind of your, your your school segregated people into kind of you know the, the lanes they were going to stick to yeah essentially for the rest of their lives and I, I've, I've talked about kind of you know, having to give up things and, and not take those options. And I, I kind of almost think like we we need to not do that. I think in some respects, I, I would almost like to see kind of GCSEs get be got rid of that. And yeah, all kids in the UK have to stay pretty much now until they're 18. Yes, they, they can get jobs from 16, but yeah, yeah. majority of kids now stay in school till they're 18 one way or another so get rid of gcse's keep the the options wide let people learn to make stuff at a higher level than yeah if they're giving it up at 13 or 14 to choose a, a limited number of options mm. get rid of that just keep everything going let people make things let people be creative let them also study sciences or learn languages and yeah keep i mean they have to keep us going to 16 anyway but yeah. yeah, give that variety, give that breadth, so that there's that people aren't losing out on art because their teacher has decided you're not going to be good enough to get the top grades at GCSE. Therefore, we're not going to let you yeah. carry on to do a GCSE. Or just even consider happens. music. Yeah. And how many schools are cutting the like my son? He's uh, he loves to play the piano. Mm -hmm. Um. And at his school, he's got quite a good uh, uh, class here. have to pay for it, which is quite expensive. So it's not even something that the school offers. It's just is offered in school. Yeah. But then to try to get him any outside help now is almost impossible. Nobody teaches music anymore. Outside mm -hmm. of a school, yeah, to find a private tutor is almost impossible. It's and uh, especially with piano. It's, although to be fair, I wouldn't want to teach piano, but it's... Uh, I think that the people just hearing Twinkle Twinkle every day would just drive me. But for everybody's passion, there must be a, a level of interest in that. Um, yeah. And there has to be a way that we can keep these things alive. Uh, 
and not let them all just be consigned to uh, electronic history, where the only way you'll learn is by watching YouTube. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was at university, because I, I had to learn math, because I didn't do math very well at high school. Um, when I was doing my A-level maths, I, I had to teach myself. Um, and I actually bought a bunch of the uh, dummies guides to math, dummies guides to algebra, dummies guides to statistics and trigonometry. And I went through them three, four, five times and learned math. But I didn't learn math the way they were trying to teach me at school. It's uh, mm. the dummies guides were probably the best uh, best teacher I have because they taught me uh, the why of it yeah. rather yeah. than just do this. Remember this, yeah. And so I was able to uh, build on each thing, which I thought, well, isn't that kind of the point of school? And even when I look back at wh what my kids are doing now, they don't do that. Yeah. It's like, just believe me when I tell you two times two is four. And they ask, well, they're kids, they're annoying. They'll ask why. It's like, because it is. And I think, well, why? And if you can answer the why question, um, that leaves a much better grounding for the next questions that come. And if you have enough of that grounding, yeah. you don't necessarily need that help to answer the question because you can figure it out yourself because you've made a good progression. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of goes with everything. That goes with uh, learning how to draw. It's uh, um, I wasn't able to draw uh, uh, um, a full-size tree the first time I did it. It took me a hundred goes of learning how to draw, you know, a, a ball and then a square and then being able to put all those different steps together, then finally I could do a tree. Uh, uh, carving a, a Mobius. First time I tried it, did not go well. Did not go well at all. That like it went so badly. I made this was my first proper one. I made out of a chunk nice. of cedar. And even this, it, it was to try to figure out how to twist the wood and have it come back on itself, um, I, I didn't find easy. Um, and even now, when I'm carving, because I'm carving some of these Mobius's uh, quite big, they're 10, 15 feet tall. Uh, I'll use quite a long chainsaw. When I'm carving them, I'm actually carving both sides of the tree at the same time. So I'm carving the face I'm looking at and the back side of it as well. Mm. So I need to be looking at myself carving and getting my brain to figure out, okay, if I'm doing this, what's happening over here? And I need to change this angle like that. And every now and then I'll need to stop and put the chainsaw down and cry and then pick the chainsaw back up and say, okay, this is what we're going to do and try. But if I hadn't done all the little ones and made them out of clay and made them out of paper and researched what is a Mobius and what's the point and how is it going to change and uh, thought of a hundred different examples of it, I wouldn't be able to carve one out of this. So it's the only thing I say, there, there isn't a, there's no shortcut. There's no, there's no shortcut. The, the only way to do something and do it well is to do it well from the first time and learn how to do it well. Otherwise it's, you know, you're, you're never going to be happy with the result. And then, but if you do practice and you learn how to do it well, by the time you're doing it well, you're 
I'm going to be progressed way past where you ever thought you were going to be. And it's like, I don't think I'm uh, at the top of my game. It's for me, it's, I've been doing abstract carvings now for eight months. Yeah, it's uh, when I, I had to do a contract uh, in Barbados at the end of last year. Before that, I was doing figurative, um, doing uh, groups. I was doing faces. I was doing animals, uh, owls. Uh, came back and was like, nope, I want to do something completely different. So I carved my first abstract. That did not go well. Second one, not too good. Third one, I sold. Um, fourth one, I sold. Fifth one, I sold. And each time I did it, I uh, made them more complicated, more and more complicated. Um, my Instagram blew up. It was, I went from, I think, maybe having 500 followers on Instagram to 7,000 um, in five months. Um, uh, it was, uh, although if, I, I wish I got at least 10% of the people who looked at my stuff would follow because then I would definitely, <laughs> yeah, I'd have yeah. a lot more. <laughs> but it's uh, then I get to the point where people will say, "It's like, oh, you've got such great natural talent." I'm like, "What? I don't have natural talent." Masses and masses of work and practice yeah. and learning and yeah. If I if I say uh, if I had natural talent, that it it. it it kind of discredits everything that's gone before. Yeah. It's like when you see like a football player like Beckham, um, or I don't watch football, so whoever's a other good player, um, can kick a ball around people and score a goal. That's not the first time he's done it. That's probably the 10 millionth time he's done that shot. Yeah. He's probably done that for, you know, uh, hundreds of hours a week. I'm, try I'm trying to remember the book. I'm pretty sure it's it's one of uh, Matthew Syed's books, uh, like Black Box Thinking, or it, it, I don't think it was Black Box Thinking, but it, it was one of his books, I'm sure. And it talked about actually about Beckham specifically, okay, and how he kind of as as a child, he would go home, and after school, he would literally spend hours playing, kind of you know, keep it up. Yeah, yeah. just be kind of bouncing the ball on his foot till he could do it, yeah, a thousand times without, yeah. yeah, without dropping the ball. And he would do that until basically his his father came home. Yeah, and when his father came home, they'd go to the park mm. and they would play football. And yeah. yeah, he would take he would practice free kicks. And when he was sort of trying to do that, one of the things he's, he he started doing then was he uh, set up a, a loop, a hoop, mm -hmm. like a hula hoop. And try and get into the the ball onto the against the wall of the garage, yeah. You know, just constantly just practicing. Mm -hmm. And he he probably did. Uh, I can't remember the exact figure in the book, but it was you're talking tens of thousands of kicks, hun possibly even hundreds of thousands of kicks. Yeah, yeah, hours and hours and hours. Yeah, you know, every day of the week. Yeah, probably. I don't know what. 50, 60 hours a week of practice. Yeah, and to, but then to do that and to, to have the will to do that and the drive to do it, I think, if anything, that's the talent. Yes. Yeah, you need to have uh, 
doesn't matter what it is, you need to have that drive, that passion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you truly want something, you're going to be able to do it. If you want to be a, a, a doctor, a dentist, a, 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 a engineer, a, a cartographer, whatever, if you want to learn to speak a different language, if you want it enough, you yes. can do it. Any Anything can be learned. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. What I do is not magic. Mm-hmm. It's just a series of skills that are, are transferable. Um, and then I get the next question. It's like, yeah, but you're very creative. Well, so I'm creative because I've thought about it and I've drawn it 10,000 times mm-hmm. um, because I love it. And so I love to see uh, a shape come out. And it's, uh, it's not just one shape. I'm drawing, I'm carving one of 10,000 shapes that are all in my head at that time. So there, it's just a combination of all these things and all the books I've looked at, all the studies I've looked at, um, all the natural inspirations I've looked at. And because they're uh, uh, never far from my thoughts, when I start to carve something, I'll be like, oh, look, I see that. When I start carving a tree, I don't know what I'm going to carve. I just start cutting bits off. And as I'm cutting bits, I'll, I'll stop and I'll go and look back and I'll go cut another piece off and I'll say, go, oh, well, shouldn't have cut that piece off. Um, then I cut another piece off and I realize, like, oh, that's perfect. And then I'll run into like a big void inside the tree and I was like, oh, what am I going to do now? Um, and I'll stop again and I'll look and I'll turn, I'll turn it upside down if I can, if I can move it. Um, and then just keep carving away. It's uh, well, one of the fundamentals of, uh, of most of the things in nature is, uh, is going to be a natural S, S shape. Um, and nature works a lot in threes. So it's like, or thirds, so you guess you could say. Um, and if you can kind of keep those ideas in your mind, so whatever you're carving, um, ideally you're, you're, you're looking for thirds, like a, our, our faces are thirds. It's uh, um, hands, flowers, tree. There, there's so many things that, that follow this rule. Then uh, you've got the Fibonacci sequence, which is the spiral. Um, uh, throw that in there. Then you think of the odd forms of like flowers, which are so irregular that they're perfectly regular. Um, so irregularity can become a common feature. And throwing that into the mix, it's a uh, so I don't think creativity necessarily is a natural talent either. It's uh, a accumulation of uh, passion and looking at a lot of different things and being able to keep them fresh in your head um, and wanting to turn that into something that you've made. Um, so it's, uh, is there natural talent? Um Yes, I've seen some people pick up a pen and draw something for the first time and do a better job of it than I. But they're not drawing the Mona Lisa. They might just draw an apple that looks more like an apple. But with time, they could potentially develop that into something pretty exceptional. Some people are more coordinated. They might be able to uh, juggle a ball better. Uh, They might be able to hold a knife better, might have better penmanship skills. Um, Hand-eye coordination, spatial awareness. I think and that might as well be transferable skills that we talked about before. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I mean, some people are better at maybe learning languages, but maybe they're better at learning languages because they were open to that from the time they were quite young. 
and it's uh, maybe they knew somebody who spoke a different language or their parents were different languages or um, maybe they just have an ear for rhythm. I mean, this, I think this is, these, these are things that make educational research so difficult. Mm. Yeah, you know, like the idea of your perfect pitch. Well, you know, what mm. does it mean musically to have you know, that, that perfect ear to be able to hear a note and say, yeah. okay, that's a thing. And you know, the, the research that's gone into it, we can't really say, you know, oh, yeah, there's this, there's these couple of genes here. And if you've got these couple of genes, then you're going to have perfect pitch. It, it, as you say, it's more likely that actually, you know, there was an exposure to music in a certain way from a very young age where you know, maybe there was a, um, I'm one, of, one of the best musicians I ever knew for, as a teacher, uh, fantastic musician. Uh, in fact, there two brothers, uh, five years apart, four or five years apart, uh, both could go on to be you know top end top notch musicians you know not just kind of in an orchestra but the you know, lead violin or, or lead sort of instrument if not solo and you kind of look into the kind of family background there's a family background of music yeah. and they've been exposed mm. to high end classical music since they were babies and probably even you know, while they were in the womb yeah. Because that's the nature of the family. And so, you know, yes, they had perfect pitch because they've been exposed to it. But I think there's also elements of some people may never have that because of maybe a, a genetic difference, not yeah. necessarily a defect. Nature a versus difference. nurture, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yes, I think, I, I, which I think is always it's a bit of both. Because yeah, yeah, David is, Beckham, yeah. yes, he, he took the time to practice thousands and thousands of hours. Mm. But he also had perhaps a, enough of genetic advantage for sports, spatial awareness. Well, not necessarily spatial awareness, because again, that can be taught. But again, we're not really sure 100 percent And it, mm. it probably isn't 100 percent one thing or another. Mm. But he's also had you know, the ability to perhaps enough you know, genetic luck, because there is an element mm. of luck, to be able to yeah. develop certain musculature and endurance. Um, yeah, parents probably what? weren't chain smokers that kind of, yeah, led to also he was out playing around running from the time he could walk, yeah. Um, uh, being pushed on, egged on by his peers, it's uh, yeah. rather than being inside playing an Xbox for 10 hours a day, yeah. So it's uh, all there, there's I think there's so many little things that lead up to what you can eventually become. It's like for me, uh. I did not do any woodwork really before I was in my 30s, but I worked in construction quite a lot um, uh, and managed construction a lot. And I knew uh, I knew what was good work and what wasn't. So when I started, and I worked with very high-end uh, 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 carpenters and masons, um, and I could look, I could look at something and say, okay, that's not what I wanted. Um, or that's not a good job. So when I started to get into it, I held myself to the same level. And if it wasn't to that same level, I just thought it was rubbish. Um, but it, rather than get frustrated with it, well, that's not true. I did often get frustrated with it. But rather than give up on it, um, 
I just think, okay, well, why is it bad? And what can I do to make it better? And what tool can I use now? Or is the tool I'm using good enough or I, do, I just cannot use the tool? And a lot of the time it was, I was not using the tool properly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I went, like most people, I went in with like, okay, this is a saw. This is how you saw. I saw things when I was two. Uh, I can saw. Or this is a hammer. I know how to hit things. Or a screwdriver or a chisel. Turns out I didn't know how to do anything. Um, and it was a, a difficult and often quite bloody lesson learning how to use chisels, learning how to make them sharp, learning saws. They got all your fingers there? Got all my fingers. And yeah. like, remember, I did say that I had one impacted. This one actually got uh, sent into my hand uh, when a, a oil rig basically fell on it at 90 meters underwater. Yikes. But it was, uh, yeah, now it's all, it's all good. No feeling in it, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's there and it works. <laughs> so anytime I do something, yeah, you can even see the scarring up there. It was, uh, so it degloved as well. So it's when the bone went inside, but the flesh didn't. Um, yeah, that was, that was not fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, especially 90 meters down and then having to decompress as well. Yeah, so I was on an oil rig in the Gulf um, and I was welding anodes onto the bottom of an oil rig. Uh, and I'd like to say an oil rig fell out of it, it's not really true. Um, we were using like a, a airlift sled. So the anodes we were doing, which prevents like corrosion, uh, they weighed uh, 50 kilos. So you couldn't carry one. So you'd have this sled, which was pulled by two wires on either side of the oil rig. Um, uh, you'd have somebody on a winch and they'd pull it. You just kind of guide it, get into position. Then you put air to it and it sticks up onto the bottom of the oar and you then weld it on. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there was a, while I was down there putting something into position, there was a shift change and somebody hit the, uh, uh, the lever that puts air to this sled and the, uh, Basically, the sled uh, uh, provides a thousand kilograms of lift, so it really gets it in there solid. It, it clears off barnacles um, uh, one time, and you can just weld it almost immediately. So I'm pulling this sled with my arm to assist the cables, and all of a sudden I felt it raise, and I pulled my hand out. I just went like this, and the sled and the rig just went, and I got my hand out. And um, I was in a lot of pain. And uh, after when the adrenaline kicked in, I, uh, I'm, I'm diving by myself because um, that's the way we operated back then. It was a single diver with emergency divers on the surface. Um, very bad to do that kind of thing now. But I went to go, I looked at my hand. I'm wearing like multiple layers of gloves, except this glove, the finger, the glove finger was there, but there was nothing in it. So I'm like, uh, irrationally thought, well, I've cut my finger off. I'm like, well, if I thought about it, I realized, well, I can't cut my finger off if the finger of the glove is still there. Mm, yeah. Um, so I talked to the service, said I'm hurt. Uh, so they, we have an elevator underwater. I get to the elevator, and there's no in-water decompression back then. You do it on the surface. So you get to this elevator. They start hauling you up from 90 meters like a fish. 
and you need to strip off all your gear. So by the time you get to the surface, you're just in a dive helmet uh, and your skivvies. Uh, they strip your helmet off. You get into a chamber and they put you under pressure. All that has to be done within five minutes or you're going to die. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you basically, your, your blood's going to fizz like a, uh, as if you shook up a Coke. Um, the only bit that made it even trickier was I was the medic for the rig. <laughs> so um, I had to get them to put my medical kit into the chamber. Um, and there are certain things you can't take into a chamber because it's an oxygen-rich environment. Oh, oxygen, yeah. Yeah, so they had to uh, take out a bunch of the stuff from my uh, medical kit. Uh, unfortunately, they took out a lot of the stuff that I needed at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't have, you know, there's usually like a little uh, chamber that you can get food to people inside a, a decompression chamber. Ours didn't have one. So it's, um, it's, I had to make do with whatever I could find in my bag. But I cut off my glove because I'm just, I'm still there. there. I'm bleeding everywhere. I cut off my glove and there's just nothing there. It was like this. Um, so I'm like... Um, like the broken arm in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah, I, I, except <laughs> it, it, there, there's no... The, the fingers are there. The, the, the whole skin, everything is inside my hand. Um, so I'm showing this to the little porthole, and they now have to call a helicopter to come and get me. Um, and as I'm there, I'm kind of like playing with it, and my finger just went, boop, and popped out. And I was uh, that was that was not good either. <laughs> I can imagine that that I can I can almost feel the color drain from you just just in describing um, that again. Yeah. Uh, but no, then helicopter flight, surgery, uh, lots of drugs. Um, I was okay, uh, thankfully. That was a, mm. one of many many very lucky escapes I've seemed to have had in my life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that's. So, so if you're experiencing welding, would you ever be inclined to maybe shift from sculpting in wood to sculpting in metal? I'd love to, but I'm a really rubbish welder. You put me underwater <laughs> where no one's ever going to see what I'm welding, I'll weld something for you. It just it. has to stick. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a question with the, with the underwater welding, because it's sure. uh, my understanding of it is that you you basically feel all of it while you're there. Oh yeah, you get shocked all the entire time. Yeah, because we used to do welding. Uh, um, the level of being shocked is going to uh, be relative to how much insulation is on the cable that you're using. Mm. But with commercial diving, you're wearing a helmet uh, uh, with a face plate and visor, and you have a little uh, uh, nozzle for you to clear your ears, like a little U-shape. Imagine a U-shape on a, on a stick, and you can push it back and forth. One of the first times I was, uh, they're normally covered with rubber. Uh, one of the first times I was welding diving, I'd used somebody else's helmet, didn't notice that their nose piece didn't have any rubber on it. <laughs> so uh, go in there and clear my ears, and it's just touching my nose here. And what you do is you go down there and they have control of the uh, electricity on the, on the surface. Mm -hmm. So you go, you get set up, you have your rod in the little gun and you tell them to make it hot. So they do like this electric chair switch 
And um, yeah, the first time you smell your nostril hairs burning because your nose has just been electrocuted, that's that's fun. Because yeah. <laughs> it's basically arc welding, isn't it, that you're doing? I got it. Well, it, it's just like regular welding. Mm. It's just with an insulated cable. Mm. But it's um, that's actually not the. Uh, there's there's one that will trump that, and that's uh, 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 burning underwater. So a lot of time when we're cutting steel, we'll use a, uh, something called a broco rod, which is you're burning with hydrogen. Uh, and so it's you've got a rod. It's quite thick, um, and it's got uh, magnesium strips inside it, I believe. And it, with a mixture of uh, oxygen coming through it, you put electricity to it, it lights, it burns at 10,000 degrees. I can cut through 10 inches of steel in seconds. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd go and cut down uh, uh, piles or remove rudders, chain, anything in seconds. That current from that one is definitely a lot stronger. <laughs> um, but it, it's only on for like a second. Mm. So there'll be sometimes, and again, it depends on how much insulation you've got on the cable. Um, I mean, normal, uh, when I've done it recently, like in the last decade, it's fine that they've eliminated all that problem. But when you're working in the Gulf of Mexico for a dodgy dive company, and you're having to drag oh, these definitely. cables across barnacles and they get stripped and shredded so there's exposed metal everywhere, you mm -hmm. get a little fried. Um, so what you, you do is you get ready to burn something and you'd grit your teeth really hard and you tell them to make it hot and then you'd be like <laughs> and try to light this thing. There's like, no straight welds anywhere at all. And they'd be burning and they'd be like, huh. And then you'd do your job. And then the rod runs out in two minutes and you do it again. Yeah, because it because uh, that's the thing, isn't it? It's all it's all it's all stick, essentially. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> when I did uh uh I've always been a very big runner. Um and I love to do these obstacle course races. And we went to Wales, a group of us went to Wales to do one of these Tough Mudder runs. Uh, tough yeah. Mudder runs is like, it's 13 miles of obstacle course races and barbed wire and uh, uh, unpleasantness. And a few of the obstacles are, you actually run through like a gauntlet of wire. And each of those wires is uh, got a bit of a shock to them. Um, but the first one we were going through, it was like a low crawl with these little wires. And we were, before we came to the obstacle, we were watching what other people were doing. And people were getting zapped and they were crying and they were screaming and they're like turning, running away from it, which didn't fill us with a lot of confidence to go and do this <laughs> obstacle. But then there were some small children who were also doing it who were like, what are you guys upset about? And touching these wires. So when I went through, um, the guy in front of me kept getting zapped. So I was like, okay, this is in your head. So I went and touched, but I just grabbed one. And it does make a zap, but there was no cut. There was no power to it. Because obviously they couldn't do something that's going to hurt people no. uh, on an obstacle course race. But it did make a great sound. So people were responding to the sound rather than to the feel. So then we were going through it. We were like messing with it. So we were walking through these things and just like, rushing our hands through it, like, pop, 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 pop. Um, so people thought we were a little crazy. and But maybe it could be because I've spent years being slightly electrocuted underwater. Uh, I said, it's possible. Yeah, so, the, the, I made it slightly immune. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> uh, can I explain my hair loss too? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've seen. I've, I haven't done a, an obstacle race, and I'm never going to do one now. But am I saying that you see people doing them with kind of you ex veterans with no legs and oh yeah, all the time pulling themselves around? It's like yeah. what's my excuse? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which neither of us have got any excuse there. I think, I think. Yeah, yes. not really. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that Tough Mudder were the first to do the electrical cable, though. The, the one up in Stafford, Staffordshire, um, which I can't remember the name of. I've, I've mentioned it before on the show. Well, the whole Tough Mudder um, thing is, is a real uh, story of infamy and uh, duplicity because the Tough Mudder, Tough Mudder it was not an original race. It was uh, a guy... Well, I don't know if I can say this. There, there's a, allegedly that a person stole the concept from another person who'd been doing the race for many years, um, who'd kind of taken him in as a, a apprentice and son. And when the annual competition opened, this other person opened their event on the same place, same day, in multiple countries. Uh, with uh, potential banners flying over. It's like, you think that's difficult? Come and do this one. Yeah. And there was a big lawsuit about it. Um, I think probably a lot of broken hearts about it too. Um, uh, it, it's uh, possible that the, the young guy who, who pulled off this thing uh, got kicked out of Harvard for it. Um, and uh, had to play a huge undisclosed sum to Ooh. somebody else. Yeah, but it's uh, I don't know that for a fact. But there's a British, there's a British guy who's been doing it for decades. Yeah, much longer than any of the kind of the, the, the big name, yeah, but Tough Mudder, Spartan, and whatever. Yeah. Um, basically, he's just a psycho up in Staffordshire, has a farm, yeah. and just built this obstacle course. And just kind of you know, challenges people to see if they can manage. He's, he's ex-military, isn't he? He's a colonel or a major, I think. Not sure, but it's a lot of ex-military. It started out predominantly as military guys going to do it before it came. Yeah, wait, one of, of his really obstacles, um, I never quite uh, liked the idea of doing one of his ones because a lot of his obstacles feature nettles. Yes, that's the guy. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't like nettles. Yeah, um, I'll and take they, electricity. He would do, and he'd do, he'd do there'd be the nettles, but there'd also be things like he ran different types of events. So, like yeah. one of them, the one of the one that kind of sticks to my mind is was literally last man standing. And so, they had this race, and literally, they these the people would take part and they would just keep going. And I think mm. he used to run a winter and a summer one, and the winter one. There's, there's some great YouTube. I'll see if I can find one and put it in the show notes. There's a, a great clip of the guy who won it. Um, he's basically, if anyone knows anything about hypothermia, this guy is yeah. in serious, serious hypothermia. He's, he's, he's How he's still standing and not unconscious is just, just a testament to the grit that he's Pure got. Your grit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they just keep going. Literally, there was just two of them going. And they, I think they kept going for like an hour or something mm. with just the two of them. And literally got to the point that they had no clue where they were. They were just on automatic pilot of just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. 
till one of them collapse. Even that, the, the, the determination to do that, it takes a lot of work, especially running around in a circle. Yeah. And you're, you're just competing with this other, by that time, like, uh, when you get to that point of exhaustion, it's, you don't see anything else, and all you can focus on is your very next step and the step of the person next to you. Yeah. And it's just that uh, you get to the point almost where it's, uh, the only thing that's going to stop you is uh, you pass out or die or win. Yeah. And it's, uh, you become so streamlined, so focused, that your own uh, self-care no longer matters. I remember reading an article, but uh, this is going back into the, the 90s, 1990s, Jimmy, um, about an event called the Deca, Deca Triathlon. Yeah. It was, a, it was a, a 10X Ironman. Okay. So the whole idea was, you, I, I can't remember what the swim length for a full Ironman is, but yeah, it was 10 times that. Okay. And they did it in a pool. Then it was 10 times the length of cycling. Then it was 10 times the length of running. So they, they were running 260 miles. Mm. And it was just, I mean, obviously this was done with support teams. And this particular article was was interviewing this one particular guy who, who'd taken part in it, British guy. And at one point, the, the, the cycling, it, was done, it wasn't done on open roads. It was done on kind of a, a closed park. Yeah. Uh, so obviously safer. At one point, he was swimming back and forth. He was cycling. Mm. And his sort of support team, yeah, because they could observe quite easily from you know, being all contained. When he got to this sort of next sort of check and kind of yeah, feeding station, feeding place, why were you swerving? And this was, yeah, this was like, yeah, because the, what was it? It'd be like 1,100 miles or something. Yeah. To cycle. Just, I mean, this is absolutely nuts as an event. He said, um, well, these, these, gravestones kept popping up in front of me so i had to go around them <laughs> yeah, it, it was so knackered he was he was hallucinating uh, it's just like uh... I mean, it, it furnished for, for for that as a thing you know to do the to do the swimming if you were if you're doing that on a boat and then it, to do the cycling if you're on a motorbike and then to do the yeah. running if you were just in a car those distances are still massively fatiguing for the average human being yep. to be physically moving them as well try and run it well there's a great uh, uh british uh running and cycling race that go by the same name which is the joggle uh which is john O'Groats to land's end mm. and they do it as both a running and a cycling race the cyclists do not do it much faster than the runners do and yeah. it is an 800 mile plus race and some of these guys are running 60 to 80 miles a day. Yeah. Back to Every back. Day. Yeah. And it's just, they're, it's, um, they're machines, really. Because they can take uh, a lot of time of a slightly more direct route than some of the cyclists can. Mm. But it's they go through the moors, up mountains. Like, imagine fell running times 10. Yeah. And it's, I would like to do it one day on a bicycle. I once had dreams of running it, like not as a race, but just like take a month out and do it. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, uh, I don't think that's ever going to be an option now. Um, I used to fancy doing the I fancy, used to fancy doing the uh, the entire coastal part of the UK on foot. Yeah, 
that was one I was fancy doing. Was I did the I was doing the southwest coast path because that's down where I live. Um, it's uh, I would have my uh, my previous partner would uh, drop me off somewhere and I would run 10, 15, 20 miles to the next point. Um, cause I, I really wanted to do the entire Southwest coast path, but that did not, uh, that became unfeasible. Once you get, you know, 50 miles out from Plymouth and you realize you've got 700 miles more to go. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. I'll look yeah. at pictures instead. <laughs> and some of the, some of the some of the coastal path, particularly down Dorset, is just absolutely destroying the kind of yeah. It's very it's very up, up and then down again, then yes, back up again, down. then down again, hmm. and and steps that are kind of just not quite the right size to be easy because there's literally uh, some parts of the south coast on, near Dorset is literally there are steps on the paths. Yeah. You can't go off the path because you're either going to fall into the sea or it's just too steep yeah. so steps have been cut i remember doing a bit of down there and the, there was this two hills in a row where the steps maybe it's just my particular height to step up you your knee was bending over kind of 90 degrees so you're yeah. kind of from vertical so like step a giant were, step so it was you're literally doing a kind of one leg squat every step <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I do it with a rucksack on as well. So it's just like it was. That was a that was a that particular trip was a hard one. That was that mm. was crazy. But yeah, you know, pretty people do these crazy trips though. Yeah, like it's all about fell running. It's some of the, the you know, around all the kind of your three thousand footers in the Lake District or, or, yeah. or North Wales. Mm. And it's just like, and you just look at the times. Of which well, yeah, well, you see some of the, the, the guys, they go and do the 10 tours or, or uh, Snowdonia. It's like, oh, yeah, I did it in 15 hours or this. It's like, yeah, these guys did it in an hour. And they ran mm -hmm. it straight up the side and they ran straight down the other side and somehow didn't die. It's, yeah, uh, they, uh, they're very impressive. I find Snowdonia is the most impressive running. I, I think it's outside of running in, in the sand or the desert. I think it's probably the most hardcore running I've seen. Mm. It's what watching a, a, watching good fell runners go downhill yeah. is one of the most impressive things. Up, I I, I used to be good at uphill. I used to be mm. able to kind of overtake people going uphill often. Yeah. But I had a massive fear of kind of going downhill. When I used to mountain bike, it was the same. I could overtake mm. people climbing, but then downhill, I just I just didn't have the. It was, it was more about the guts because fell runners will literally be going full pelt. They'll be sprinting. Down. Oh yeah, no, no control. Uh, they're yeah. completely past stopping. Yeah, and mm -hmm. it's uh, uh, like I say, it's it, where is that that ridiculous cheese chase the cheese down? Oh, the Gloucester, yeah, Gloucestershire. Yeah. 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 So you see, it's like people doing that, but successfully. Yes. Mm. So they're running straight down there, but uh, making it look easy. Be the and, people, not the cheese. Yeah, of course, there is no cheese involved when they actually do the fell run, but it's. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's um, the maybe that's what they embrace is they 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 they, they imagine the cheese that they that they're chasing down the hill and that's that's the only focus that they have maybe. Yeah, to be fair, I'm actually still amazed that's allowed in this country. <laughs> with, with all the health and safety and everything, it's like oh, that's not a regulation cheese. 
Um, and put them <laughs> oh, no, it will, be, the cheese will definitely be regulation. Yeah, the cheese itself <laughs> will definitely be regulation. Well, it, it, there, there must be a, a, a safety assessment. What if the cheese goes into the crowd? Is, it, is the cheese moldy? It's... Um, is it is it gluten free? Is it <laughs> were any nuts used in the making of this cheese? Uh, uh, that's chasing the cheese, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not the just. Yeah, hello. Hi. Uh, I'm, I'm getting impatient uh, uh people here. Well, perhaps so we should, perhaps we should yeah, move on to our yeah, attention grab. So yeah, kind of towards the end of the sort of Sort of sure. podcast we we ask people what's been grabbing their attention lately which can be absolutely anything whether it's you know something you're working on something you're about to work on something you've watched something you've read film music doesn't really matter just you know, what's been grabbing your attention um uh i don't even know where to start it's uh <laughs> i look at uh i look at instagram quite a bit and i see some uh uh uh, truly amazing things and amazing people yeah. carving things. Um, it's like a, you had on a couple of people you've had on here. Uh, Andy's incredible. It's uh, I love his his uh, uh, his drive and passion for for carving things and um, being creative and using his tools. Uh, Lindsay was on. Uh, she's amazing. I actually yeah. missed. A, I regret I missed a chance to meet her at Makers. Um, it was a uh, makers uh, this year was a bit manic, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really get a chance to go and meet as many people as I would have liked. Um, there are so many, there are so many people out there just doing and making incredible things. Um, I get lost down the rabbit hole quite often. Yeah. It's, uh, whether it's, uh, I, I step back a little bit from watching uh, YouTube. Uh, uh, making uh, makers on YouTube just because I get too caught up into it and I get distracted from whatever I'm trying to do. Because, like, this morning I started watching somebody making a live edge table out of like the worst piece of whatever. And I like their concept. And I said, like, Well, maybe I would have done this and this and this. So I started planning on how I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I'm just like, No, I'm not doing a table. So it's. <laughs> I suffer um, quite badly with that as well. Yeah, Mobius strip legs. Uh, yeah, well, don't give me bloody ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually working on a Mobius strip bench. Ooh, nice. Out of a, like a big log. Nice. So, so we'll see if the idea gets taken and if it gets commissioned. Um, if it doesn't, I might just make a small one for my house. Just, uh, just so I can see if I can do it. Because once it's in my head, I have to do it um recently i've been trying to teach myself piano which is a uh, i love music um and i love uh classical piano um yeah. and uh, when i was going through uh, uh my grief in my morning i listened to a lot of uh ludovico Inaudi, yeah who is just he's his work is deceptively simple and complex at the same time um I, I, one of my favorite modern classical yeah, he, I, yeah he's just incredible and it's uh what he does and the emotion that he can bring out in you is just incredible and i was like i would love to even do a tenth of that 
So my son, he's into piano, so we have a piano. It's like, okay, I can I can do this. <laughs> Turns out <laughs> not everything you really want to do is going to be possible when you've had, I don't know, seven broken fingers over your lifetime. It's yeah. uh yeah, it's, uh, some of them are like, quite so learn to play with your toes. Yeah, that is actually a might be as good. <laughs> <laughs> no, but again, it's I. Uh, it's that it passion. Takes more, it just takes more grit and determination. Yeah, it's the passion for it. I love to listen to it. I'm not really that fussed about learning how to play, even as much as I want to play it. Uh, you have to want to spend that time learning yeah. the keys and learning the progression. You can't just go there and start doing Mozart. Well, you could, but not successful. Uh, but there's yeah. there's so many different artists I see and I follow and it's like when it comes to me making a sculpture uh, I'm still working on quite a big one at the moment well, I'm actually working on three big ones but I'm already two carvings ahead in my head so when these three are done I've already finished the next two uh, and I'm thinking about the next one as well um, and anytime I see something that I find Oh, how can I incorporate that? Or that's just beautiful. Or uh, this morning I, I saw a beautiful uh, flower and it's like, well, that's just gorgeous. That's perfect. Maybe I can try to create something like that. But then it's like, but no, I have to do some abstract mm -hmm. shapes. So, oh, hang on. Maybe I can do some abstract shapes. I don't. So, Interesting things I've seen. Uh, there's too many to count. There's uh, there's yeah, beauty everywhere. Yeah. Uh, there's people creating amazing things everywhere. And uh, one of the things I love about Instagram um, and YouTube is being able to share other people's vision and seeing their path and their trip and what they're creating. Um, and try to give you know, support to it. And and they may reach out and if I see somebody doing something which a lot of time I'll just see something that's uh, I'm just like, wow, that's just fantastic. Well then. Um, and if uh, somebody's watching and I haven't said that on their Instagram yet, well, keep working at it. <laughs> <laughs> it it's, it's so hard to, to, to keep up with Instagram, I think, yeah. and, and, and YouTube. I think it's so we've talked again another thing we've talked about many times you know that just being able to never mind the fact that you know instagram doesn't necessarily feed us all the things we want to follow but just yeah. just even if it did even if it did it would be impossible to keep up with unless you follow 10 people 20 people well it's, i try to um anytime i see somebody uh you're completely correct anytime i see somebody's work i like or i like how they work i save one of their pictures yeah um Same. so i can find them later mm -hmm. so a lot of the time i don't scroll through instagram randomly i scroll through my saved pictures and look to see what the people who i've liked are doing um and i then i tend to see a lot more of what i want to see mm -hmm. and it's uh it's that's a good tip yeah yeah it, i don't know if that's a practical thing for a lot of people because it's um i get inspiration from quite a few uh, because, uh, quite a lot of them are not woodworking or even sculpture. 
It's uh, it'll be uh, uh, a picture of a beach. It'll be the crest of a breaking wave. Um, it'll be uh, uh, a piece of wire rope on a bridge that's bent in a certain way, and it just kind of like uh, um, catches me. I just like I love that 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 position that view of it is just in my head kind of perfect so it's i do uh i follow loads of different uh, uh different types and different uh crafts and it's because there's a, a, a certain beauty in all of it mm. so is there okay. anything that really stands out to me um ask me again in five minutes and yes i'll tell you ten but right at the moment, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Jamie, what about you? What's been grabbing your attention this week? Uh, Stefan from CNC Kitchen has, has caught me good and proper with a... Um, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I sort of... I'd had the idea and sort of thought, oh, I wonder if... And then he's just had this fantastic knack of doing that every time me or, or Duncan from Little Hobby Shoppers... <laughs> has thought about something uh, almost immediately afterwards uh, Stefan releases uh, an incredibly detailed well-researched well-engineered uh, video that kind of goes into the absolute minutia of, uh, of why it would or wouldn't work and how it does and doesn't work uh, and this time around it was on um, extending uh, 3d printer nozzles using nuts essentially um, yeah, so it, it's, yeah, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful bit of videography to go into uh, this explanation of uh, and this testing process of yeah. all these different configurations of, uh, of. He takes a very scientific approach to it. Which... He does, mm. yeah, and yeah. That, that's part of his profession is doing that that kind of uh, R and D. Um, but it's just the way he does his videos is beautiful and it's it's very good nerdery so that's been a, a fantastic one this week um because i've been doing still been doing a lot of prototyping on my uh secret project so yeah mm. that, that's been my um, um bit of fun how about you andy what's been mm. grabbing your attention apart you? from apart from melting or trying not to melt <laughs> um which is uh, the, for anyone who's watching earlier today when I was kind of posting, deleting, posting, deleting, because I kept messing up <laughs> Jonathan's name um, and spelling of it. Yeah, uh, sorry, I mean, my mom just spelled the common name in the world and made it complicated. But the, the, yeah, I mean, there's, there's multiple spellings of Jonathan particularly. Then I left the TF Whitaker as well. Yeah. Um, and I know I know a variety of Jonathans, and, and most of them are Jonathans, yeah. without their H as well, and or without two Hs. So I, and it, it was uh, just been a melty day. Uh, I've wise. had arguments with people before about how my name should be spelled. <laughs> and it's like I mean, like the yeah. password office, and they're like, "That's not how you spell Jonathan." It's like I didn't choose this spelling. It's on the paper. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> Read the letters, put them in the right order. That's all you need yeah. to do. But so that, you're on holiday, yeah. right? <laughs> Me on holiday. Yeah. Uh, well, kind of. I'm always on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> bloody teachers yeah well I'm, I'm not a professional teacher anymore i mean I'm, well I'm getting, I'm getting into tutoring so um yeah, yeah. you're getting back into it in yeah, a way getting into, getting into, don't teach piano do you 
no, no. I've got the hands for it. I got the hands for it. I've got, I've got a good, got a view. But yeah, no. Uh, should have done. But book. Uh, yesterday, I, I uh, did a bookbinding workshop. Uh, so I did one about three weeks ago, and I did another one yesterday. Did a particular, a different style of binding. And it was nice because the, the, the place we were at, it was twenty-two degrees all day, which was just wonderful. Till mm. I stepped into the outdoors at the end of the day, about caught fire. About six o'clock, <laughs> it was thirty-four degrees, and it was just like, oh. but it was it was a lovely day. Brain was functioning perfectly because it was twenty-two degrees and made a made a book <laughs> and had some really great conversations and some great food. Um, so it was it was a, a fantastic day. So yeah, bookbinding. Yeah, apart from that, not really much else. Just melting. So yeah. <laughs> At that point, where can people find you, Jonathan? What's the best place for people to? Um, you, you can find me at uh, uh, my Instagram. So it's uh, that's usually the best place to find me. I post there pretty much every day, which is my name, Jonathan Whitaker. Uh, or you can just Google Jonathan Whitaker, and I'll pop up. Uh, usually uh, for YouTube or for the NHS plaques or for wood carving sculpture, um, or, or as an actor, as I discovered before. Yeah, if that one's not me. Like an, yeah, if you spell your name like a normal person spells it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a um, there, there there's another Stones out there whose mother gave him the bloody name <laughs> and the last name. Um, no, it's I. People get the, it's like are you, I get uh, been often asked this like, am I related to Jonathan Whitaker, the actor? I'm like, well, what are the odds of that? <laughs> yes, that's my brother. He's a Jonathan as well. The same name. Yeah. Yes. Same name. We just differentiate with the spelling. It's yeah. <laughs> it's uh no it's like anybody with the last name Whitaker is like, oh well, we must be related. It's like or oh, possibly not. No, no, maybe, maybe we're we're just not, and that's okay yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. But so YouTube, Jonathan Whitaker or Carved by Hand. Um Looking for my stuff, uh, quite a few of the galleries in the Southwest carry my work, although we've lost nine galleries uh, recently. Nine galleries wow. have gone out of business. As COVID, I was mentioning before, COVID, that, that now it's um, it's I think it's just the the people aren't spending money in galleries because they're still spending the same amount of money. Um, uh, ours is actually more art selling than normally is, but galleries themselves are shutting down, mm. which is a real shame. Yeah, um, it's a. Uh, it, it can be uh, quite difficult as an artist to go to a gallery and they take uh, forty or fifty percent commission of what you're, or um, mm. uh, they charge a forty to fifty percent commission, but it's. Um, they have the shop they put the man hours in they do the advertising so it's i don't begrudge them and at the end of the day if you want to be a professional artist it's a job yeah and there are uh, yeah you have to have a thick skin and you have to be able to you know sell your stuff it's uh, if you can't sell your stuff you're not going to be able to uh make a living out of it yeah but like unfortunately there it does there does seem to be the the death of galleries recently um which is a shame because it's a great place for people to display art yeah 
I'm like, Curious. if anything, my long-term ambition will be to set up a, uh, a gallery, um, like a working gallery, where people could come in and try different crafts from everyone, from children to uh, 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 people of a certain age. And they could try painting or pottery or uh, woodwork, uh, bowl turning, sculpture, and the same place. And for people who are struggling, one of the diff most difficult things of being an artist is actually getting into a gallery. Uh, touching on what Andy was saying the other day, there is a whole pretentiousness to it. Yeah. That it's, uh, if you don't have the lingo right, and you don't have the spiel right, regardless what your art's like, you're not going to get into a gallery. It's um, a lot of the time they don't want to, they don't hear, I made it because it was pretty. Or I carved it because that's what it needed to be. That doesn't, that doesn't fly. You have to have, there has to be some deeper meaning, deeper connection, which does make sense as well because people who are buying it like to have a deeper connection with the things that they are uh, potentially spending a lot of money on. So it's, uh, it can be tricky getting into that, into that side of it. But if, if I can say if people are interested in getting into galleries, um, I wouldn't say make up a story, but whatever you talk about, make it real, make it personal to you. Um, and you can give names to your stuff or not. You can give stories to your stuff or not, but have a reason why. As a, if you think it's pretentious, say so. If you think it's this, don't just say I can't be bothered, because that will you'll quickly be shown the door. Um, but uh, so and don't don't poo poo the galleries too much because it's yes they can be expensive but yes they're one of the only places you're really going to be able to have your work in a, a a location where people can come and see and visit and find you. Um, I remember just because it's in a gallery doesn't mean it's going to sell. Uh, sometimes uh, um, and hope none of the galleries are listening. So galleries can be a great place to store work. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I don't want to, my. I've got six pieces in here right now. Especially uh, the size really, of work you do, yes. Yeah, I don't really mm. want any more in here. So it's this collection will go off to a gallery. It, and yes, I'll have to uh, agree a certain commission, but that doesn't mean it's going to sell. And it could sell privately, or I can move it on to another gallery and I get a better rate. It, it, just because you're putting it into a gallery doesn't mean that they are going to keep it. Mm. You could have it there for a week or a month or 10 months or two years, or it could sell the same day. And it's uh, all of that is just going to allow you a freeze up storage. B gives you some money, lets you move on to the next, the next thing, so on and so forth. And it's, it is quite difficult still for me to, uh, let go of some of the things I carve, which is why I liked doing it over Instagram and it shows because I get to meet the people who buy it um, mm. a lot of the time. And uh, I often will kind of keep track of them and they send me pictures. It's, it's like, you know, you've adopted a puppy or something. It's kind of ridiculous. But it's uh, when, you, when you put a lot of yourself into making something, there is a connection to it. 
Mm. Yeah. So it's uh, that might be remember that whole artist blab that uh, I carve this because it joins the dichotomy of human nature with the leaf structure or whatever. Um, so maybe that's just my plan. It's uh, this is my puppy. I'm giving it to you. You take care of it because I love it too. And if you mean to it, I'm going to come for it. But it's um, <laughs> if it works, it works. Yes. No, but it's, uh, um, yeah. hopefully we can get through this whole pandemic thing and this fuel crisis thing and this tax crisis thing and this government crisis thing and this war crisis thing and every other crisis thing that we're going through because uh, tomorrow's going to be a newer better fantastic day with lots of stuff to carve and beautiful things to see and great people to talk to yeah yeah i think yeah. on that's probably a good time good note to say goodbye to people and they can and go and Thank you very much for joining us, Jonathan. Absolutely. Jamie, not yes. a problem. Thank you very much for asking me. You too, Andy. Yeah. It's been really nice chatting to you. And yeah, it's good to actually sit down for yeah. and have a, a, a moment chat. to actually chat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a proper chat. Well, we'll yes. say goodbye to folks now. And um, yeah, we'll see everyone next week. Indeed. Bye, folks. All right. Bye. See you guys.